Okay, guys, Jack here. I'm really excited for today's episode. We've got Andrew Brokus of the Thinking Poker Podcast on with us today. Before we get to the hand, a few announcements. The first one, very exciting. Uh, we are going to be streaming the first Just Hands home game this Saturday, October 8th from 6 to 10 p.m. Uh, so this is going to be a game streamed on Poker on Air's uh, channel on Twitch. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting about it all week. And it's going to be six or seven of us, myself included, uh, playing a shorthanded hold'em game that will at first be commentated by Zach, and then I'm going to join him in the booth for the second half. Uh, so it'll be an opportunity to see how we play, how we think in real time. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Another related announcement. You guys have been coming to us uh, with requests that we change the stake for the Greg Raymer event from 2-5 to 1-2. And we thought about it, and we want this event to be open to as many people as possible. So we are following your lead. And the Greg Raymer event, which, as a reminder, uh, Zach, Greg, and I are going to be hosting now a 1-2 no-limit cash game at the Poker on Air Studios, where we are hosting our home game. And we're inviting people to sign up to participate in this game, receive Greg, Zach, and my commentary, uh, and also get some feedback in the form of an improvement plan. A lot more information can be found out about this at our website, but the main news today is that it's now a 1-2 game. All right. Thank you guys so much, and enjoy the episode. Hello, Jack. Hey, Zach. How's it going? Going, going real well for me here. How uh, how's it feel back in, be back in the states? It feels good to be back in the states. Uh, I'm mourning the loss of my computer here in uh, Terminal C, <laughs> Cleveland Airport. But nonetheless, it's good to be back. It's good to be talking to you, and it's good to have uh, our special guest today. Do you want to yeah. give him a, a more deserving intro? Sure. Yeah. So today on the podcast we have Andrew Brokus. Uh, I'm sure many of you know him as the host of the thinking poker podcast uh him and his podcast are a major motivation for what jack and i do and it's a real honor to have him on the show today uh how you doing andrew oh i'm good i'm i'm flattered <laughs> I'm, i mean I'm, I'm always flattered if, if people are even listening to our show let alone uh trying to uh trying to do their own yeah well yeah i know what you mean you know having started this and you know just having a lot of people that <laughs> Not only do we not know, but I have no idea how they found us in the first place. But thank you for finding us. Uh, yeah, it's humbling. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's a big deal hum- for people to give you like an hour of their time every week or half hour or whatever you guys do. It's a, it's a big commitment. Well, thank you in return for giving us this uh, half hour or an hour. We'll see how good the discussion gets <laughs> of your time. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Andrew, I'd give you a lot more of an hour of my time if you uh, ever start making more episodes. I'm sure a lot of your listeners would agree. But. Cool. <laughs> Uh, so the hand we'll discuss today is a listener hand we actually received uh, this morning or kind of late last night um, using our form on our website. So um, I'll just give some background. The game took place uh, in Texas, underground game. It was a Friday night at about 1 a.m. And the hero has been playing for about five hours. The stakes are 1-2. The hero has 325 and wrote that they bought in for 200 and was down from 650. The main villain in the hand has 3,000. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's 
Sounds like time to hunt off a stack. (laughs) Yeah, so the main villain in the hand has 1,500 big blinds. Um, And the limper that comes in the hand has a couple hundred. So three villains. The main villain is rich and from India and probably 35. And this is the second time our hero and this main villain have played together and noted that he is very loose and aggressive and that he doesn't remember much about the middle position limper. Um, yeah. So the preflop action is the middle position limper limped, and then this player limps behind with queen ten of clubs on the button, and he wrote in parentheses, I called knowing the very loose aggressive small blind would raise. If I raised, he would three bet, and I did not want to play the hand for $40 preflop. And then he made another note that the villain open raises between 10 and 15 seemingly at random. Then the villain makes it 15 in the small blind, the limper calls, and the hero calls. Uh, so before moving on to the flop, Andrew, what do you think about kind of these notes about uh, what our hero wrote and you know why he opted to limp behind instead of raise on the button with queen 10 of clubs? I, I like it. Um, I think I, I already kind of like limping behind with his stack being what it is. Um, I think as you get deeper, you know, you're you're sort of raising the value of your position as much as your hand. And, and Queen Ten suited is like a pretty nice deep stacked hand. And obviously, the button is as good as you're going to get position wise. Uh, so I think the deeper you get, the more tempting it is to raise. But I do also think you know if you're expecting that this guy is going to three bet so aggressively, even against a wide three betting range, Queen Ten suited. I mean, to hand, I'm perfectly fine. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to go up against it in position. But I like the idea of having more money behind. Um, and I don't think I'm you know a favorite against his preflop range that I'm really excited to put in a lot more money against it. So I think you know if you're pretty confident that this player is going to raise, although I guess I mean if we really mean that he's like literally always going to raise and he's going to be raising a hundred percent, then like, I guess I would be pretty happy to just raise and jam over three bet. If we really think he's going to three bet that much. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with everything that that's the only thing I was going to add is that, um, I think when people write something like if I raised, he would three bet. It's just, you know, it's so unlikely that that is the case. Even someone who is like very loose and aggressive is rarely three betting a hundred percent of hands, um and yeah playing your kind of like two to one gap or two to connectors like this limp it intending on you know limp calling you know most sizings in position with some money behind i feel like it's going to be the the most profitable way to play the hand yeah i i, I do like the, the limp but I, I mean i also would want to i mean i don't know what the buy-in limits are here but um I, I think it's pretty damn tempting to put some more money on the table if this guy has three thousand dollars in front of him. Like, part of what I don't like about this is just I, I feel so uh, hamstrung by having only two hundred and fifty dollars in front of me. Yeah, I mean, I think the the hero has three three twenty five now, but still, okay, I, so I, I know what you mean. Even so. Yeah. And also, but if, it, the, if the dude, got... yeah, and to, to be fair to the whoever wrote in the hand, you know, I'm you know I'm guessing this player probably doesn't play professionally or for you know part of their income, so like putting what would be a large percentage of their bankroll or just a large, you know, actual amount of money if they don't have a dedicated poker bankroll. I definitely empathize with, with not doing that. But yeah, if I was, you know, if I was personally in this game, then yeah, I would, you know, do everything I can to add on to 3000 Yeah, fair enough. So the flop is the queen of hearts, seven of clubs, and the eight of spades. And our hero is holding the queen ten of clubs. So they flop top pair uh, with a backdoor flush draw. And the listener writes, uh, this is what I would consider a good flop for me against his range. He checks, the middle position player checks, 
and uh, our hero bets 30 into a pot of $47, and the small blind calls, and the middle position folds. Yeah, the the betting I'm not so... I mean, I, I think betting something is okay. I think betting that at large is not real appealing um, because I don't see a lot of worse hands calling. So I, I think you know, people who... Uh, the, the, there's a concept that I like to use uh, that I call value targeting, which is sort of thinking about when you're value betting, what is the hand that you're hoping to get called by? And I, I sort of feel like what's happening here is uh, our, our correspondent is just saying, like, well, it's a good flop for me, so I'm going to bet. And I usually bet two-thirds of the pot, so I bet two-thirds of the pot. And I think sort of the, the better way of doing that is to say, okay, why am I betting? What am I looking to accomplish by betting? Um, here, there are some second best hands that can call us, especially if we bet a somewhat smaller amount. It's not real likely that someone is in here with a worse queen than ours. Unfortunately, our, our kicker is not so great. Um, so it's it's kind of hard. And this is one of the reasons why we want to use a smaller sizing is that we need to incentivize our opponent to call with some hands that are worse than ours. Um, so I think with a smaller bet size, as we start to give them incentives to peel with um, the flop of seven and eight queen rainbow. Uh, yeah, queen, right? queen seven eight rainbow backdoor flush draw. Yeah, so we'd like to give them a chance to peel with like nine eight or something like that. And I think if we bet too much, they're just not going to make those calls. They're not going to make those calls very frequently. I guess if you think you know they, they definitely will call with any pair on the board, you might as well bet large. Um, I mean, they are going to have. They're not going to have a, a queen that dominates us that often. So, I mean, if, if you believe that second best hands will call larger bets, that's fine. But I think it's just good to be conscious of what is the hand that you're looking to get called by. And here, I think um, we kind of need to get called by relatively weak hands. I also think we don't have to be terribly concerned about protection here. I mean, you know, it's there's only one hand that has two live over cards against us, which is exactly Ace King, and you know it doesn't seem like the limper is likely to have that, and it sounds like the three batter can have all kinds of stuff, so we don't have to be super worried about him having that. Um, there's not a lot of draws on the board, nor does it seem that likely anyone has a draw, so it's not like we have to be that concerned about uh, you know what kind of odds we're giving someone to you know to to call with some hand that has a very good chance of drawing out on us. Like I'm basically looking at a situation where we have a pretty good hand that's very hard to draw out on, but also kind of difficult to get people to put a lot of money in the pot with worse. And so I, I don't think that we want to be making a real large flop bet. Yeah. Uh, Jack, is there anything you wanted to add? One thing I would add, and I pretty much agree with everything Andrew said. Uh, the thing I would add to even further Andrew's point that our hand doesn't really need protection is that, uh, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of us are a little bit nervous about getting drawn out on, uh, but a little bit of a saving grace on this particular board is that, a lot of the turn cards that would complete a draw, you know, basically all of the draws being straight draws, mm-hmm. uh, those are going to give us uh, straight outs as well. So, you know, our hand needs even maybe slightly less protection uh, than it otherwise would. But yeah, yeah I, I, I think, think that's a really good point. And, and we block some of the hands. Like, you know, we yeah, yeah, we block 9, 10. The, the other thing I wanted to add about using a smaller bet sizing is, you know, Andrew's talking about what are we value targeting here? And, you know, what are we going to try to get called by? But given this description, the guy's at 3,000. And let's, you know, maybe take the hero a little bit more at his word. Like, maybe he will 3-bet 100% of the small blind. I mean, he does have 1,500 big blinds, so he might be playing really crazy. And maybe if his 3-bet percentage isn't 100% in that spot, it might be something still ridiculous, like 30 or 40%. Um, so if he's playing that loose and aggressively, I think we, you know want to bet to induce for value here like if i'm this villain i'm up you know thousands of dollars at a one two game i'm playing really loose and aggressive it's checked to the button and they bet ten dollars you know this person is 
almost certainly and in, in based on the description going to be choosing to raise with their gut shots or you know a random seven they decide to turn into uh like kind of a bluff semi bluff type hand so uh, i like a sizing of probably like 11 or 12 and i've used this concept on the show before but it's kind of like a fuck you bet it's a bet that's kind of like so small and has like a weird number attached to it that i think it's just a lot more likely to induce a bluff than like you know what would be a more standard sizing like i think 11 or 12 would get disproportionately way more bluffs than like 15 would relative to the like the size of the pot even though the frequency should be about the same so yeah i like betting like 11 or 12 not to, to get value from worse pairs from you know maybe primarily and draws from middle position um and somewhat to the small blind but thinking more about how can i induce this player to raise and i think against most of the field people play against like trying to induce one two players to raise you is not going to be a winning strategy you want to do what andrew is saying and value target uh, to try to get called by a primarily loose passive player pool, but I think in this specific scenario, betting to induce a raise is is probably like I don't know what you want to call that a a bluff raise induced target, not exactly a value target, but in a way, you know, you're you're trying to get value. Yeah, or or even check to induce a bet. Yeah, I think I think both of those things are probably better than betting big. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like check 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 the flop and just like plan on bluff catching the vast majority of turns and rivers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if 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 you think that our main source of value is going to be inducing bluffs uh, from the small blind, I prefer just checking and then bluff catching two streets or value betting two streets uh, if check to, rather than trying to get bluffed on the flop. Just because I think there's there's too many hands that beat us for me to be comfortable trying to sort of coax this player into raising us with you know a really wide range. Uh, I think it's possible that that could t- turn out well for us, but I think it's just a lot a lot riskier of a play, and I, I think p- potentially wrong that I'm not necessarily tempted to take that type of line. I'd rather bet a sizing that's small enough to get calls from uh, sevens, eights, uh, middle pocket pairs, and is big enough that it won't tempt, you know, this player to start raising us really wide, which would be a good thing if he were, but it, it'll be difficult to actually uh, make that decision when it happens. And not difficult in the sense we should be avoiding a difficult decision, but difficult in the sense that I think we could use it to be wrong, and this player just has a lot of hands that are better than our hand. Really? Uh, I mean, there aren't that yeah, many I don't hands know. that are better than our hand, and I don't know that he's checking the flop with that many of them after three-betting pre-flop, like... Exactly. Well, he didn't three bet. He open raised. But that's that's, what, fair. that's what I was going to oh, say. Fair. Yeah. But either way, it's uh... yeah. I think it's very it's very unlikely. Like when you have a loose aggressive player, typically like even the ones that are playing an incredibly wide range that are losing players, like the one thing these players know how to do is get value with their strong hands. You know, and like this guy wouldn't be at three thousand dollars if he's not getting you know near max value with his strong hands. Is kind of my guess. So yeah, I think I think most value in this hand, Jack would come from inducing a bluff uh, with a smaller sizing. Uh, but I definitely think that that's probably not true for, for most players. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if we're sure this player is going to bet all their strong hands and you know be raising our bet extremely widely, then obviously that's a good a good idea. Yeah, but I mean, he, he doesn't even need to be raising that extremely widely, you know? It's just more like if he raises, you know... All of his gut. If let's say he raises his gut shots fifty percent of the time here, and 
you know, 80% of the time he's betting all of his hands that are better than ours, you know, which I think that's like a, you know, pretty safe assumption given the description we have. I think the first assumption is safe. The second assumption I'm not uh, anywhere near as confident about. In really, terms you think of he's the, like check raising the flop with like king queen? Maybe I have the order wrong. I'm more confident that he's betting his mate hands on the flop than that he will uh, bluff raise us at a high frequency. Yeah, that that I agree with. Okay. Yeah. Either way, yeah, betting small or checking is is better than than betting thirty. Um, so we all agree on that. Uh, let's go to the turn. So the turn is the nine of clubs. So what, what what was the conclusion of the flop action? Who called? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mention that. Yeah. So the the button bet thirty. The small blind calls and the middle position player folds. So there is now about a little less than 110, like 107 in the pot. And this player now has um, about like 280 behind. Um, So the the flop was queen of hearts, seven of clubs, eight of spades. And the turn is the nine of clubs. So our hero is holding queen ten of clubs. So now our hero has an open-ended straight draw as well as a flush draw to go along with their top pair. Now the villain checks. So with 285 behind, 100 in the pot, what is a pretty good turn card for us? What are you, what are you thinking here, Andrew? Uh, I think this is a pretty clear check behind. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've, we've, we've turned open-ended and a flush draw, but I think we're, we're really running thin on value targets at this point. Um, yeah. I think you know, a lot of the hands that we were hoping to get called by on the flop, uh, I mean, outside chance, they drilled a straight, more likely you know, drilled two pair or something like that. Um, I think we have a lot of equity here, but not so much that we're going to be ahead of a calling range and not so much that we're going to be excited about calling a check raise. So I, I think we're, we should be pretty happy to just see a river card and, um, I mean, I think there are a fair number of rivers will end up folding, but there's also a fair number of rivers where we'll have a, a pretty nutted hand. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I also, to, to kind of add to that, is like the few value targets we have, we're blocking. So there's a lot of, you know, our value targets on the flop, turn, two pair, turn straights, uh, and the few types of hands that we'd want to get value from, uh, we're, we're blocking, like flush draws or other open-ended straight draws, so... Yeah, I think yeah. it's a pretty pretty clear check behind, but it, it is a little bit counterintuitive because you know you have top pair in the flop, and then you have a card that gives you a ton of equity. So kind of at first thought, it's like, oh, uh, you know, I have a lot more equity now. I have a flush on a straight draw. I should probably bet. But you know, when you then you think about the value targets, it becomes a very clear um, check behind. Yeah, I, I think that's a thing that people have a lot of issue with. I mean, I, I think you, I see it most on the flop, but uh, I suppose it's the same idea on the turn when people will say, well, you know, this is a good flop for me, therefore I bet. And, or in this case, you know, this is a good turn for me, so I bet. And you know, it, it just it just doesn't follow logically that just because it's a good card for you, you know, betting is, is the, the best play for you. Yeah, not, not much debt on my end, I agree. Check. Cool. So in-game, the hero bet $40 into the $100 pot. And that, and then the small blind made it a hundred dollars. That's what we didn't want. <laughs> yeah. So now let me just read what the hero wrote. Um, I now have about two forty. It is sixty more to call, which would leave me with one eighty. I feel like I cannot fold, so my options are to call or go all in. Call. <laughs> I, I don't think you're ever getting a fold, and I don't think you're a favorite. Yeah. So I. So yeah, this is a pretty cl- even though the the bet was a mistake, this is a pretty clear call with all of our equity against right. a r- white. Yeah, okay. 
So I think this is a pretty clear call. Uh, the, the hero goes all in. So the listener wrote, my thinking is that if he is on the flush draw, that I, I need to get the money in now while he is drawing. Also, this was my declared last hand of the night. Go home zero or go home hero. If I win, I check out 650, 450 up. So, yeah, if either you wanted to comment on, on those thoughts about going all in. Well, I already said it at the beginning. This seems like a perfect hand to bust out on. You know, we're on the button, betting into a big stack. So, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I I guess I think there's an obligatory comment to be made here about this sort of mindset. I, I understand the appeal. You know, you, you were at 650 at one point. There's There's definitely a part of all of us that wants to, you know, either capture that big win that we had or that you know we want or i guess lose i don't think any of us actually really want to lose but i th- i think for the long-term health of i think anyone's poker career whether you're an aspiring professional or an amateur uh whatever you are the long-term health and happiness of your poker playing is going to come from trying to make the best decisions you can uh and those decisions are not going to necessarily be they shouldn't be informed as much by things like this is my last hand of the night and I want to either win or lose. It, it just it would be better off. It would be better served if you focus more on the expected value of your decision making uh, rather than those factors that lie sort of outside of the game. Yeah, I mean that that's certainly my my attitude as a professional is that you know I'm I'm always trying to uh, make the the most money that I can and you know what I tend to say to people who I'm you know coaching or who are asking me for advice or whatever is kind of like. I, I can help you make the most profitable decisions. I understand that you might have other incentives or other reasons for playing poker besides making as much money as you can. And uh, I mean, that's sort of up to you to decide. Like, if you if you really care more about doubling up or going home broke, like if if, if you have some reason to to find that appealing, you know, that's up to you. It's your money. But uh, it, it, that's it, it's not a money making mindset. Yeah, and and just to reiterate what you were talking about before, um, you know, when when you go all in here. I think it's very unlikely to get called by worse, and there's very few better hands that are ever folding here. So, as always, you know when you're when you're making a bet or you know going all in, you have to think: Am I bluffing or am I value betting? Um, and if you're value betting, you have to think: You know what what worse hands or what hands with lower equity than me can call? So, for the results, uh, well, oh sorry, I'm leaning towards a call. But do you wanna do you wanna discuss it any further? Because on a little bit of thought. I don't think there's a ton of better hands here. Uh, I think there's enough that it makes me think, you know, on first instant calling is best. But one thing I've I've noticed is that players tend to make strange bets. Like, I think we, you know, very similar to the situation we just talked about where even though, you know, this turn card gives our hand a lot of equity, we don't think it's necessarily a bet. I think a big mistake a lot of amateurs make, and I wouldn't be surprised if our opponent is making, is when you turn a hand like a pair and a flush draw, deciding to play it very aggressively. So if our opponent has a hand like 10-9, I would not be surprised at all to see them play it this way. So yeah, there's not a, there are some straights, but not a ton. There's obviously a, a very clear two-pair hand that's possible. Uh, but I, I think Queen Nine is somewhat unlikely. I think Queen Nine is very likely to bet the flop. So I'm I'm just wondering uh, if you think it's it's best to be risk averse. If you think 
that there's just certainly uh, you know enough value hands here that we're never ahead, or not never that's, ahead, but we're not ahead enough. I mean, that's the way it seems to me, off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I haven't uh, done done uh, what do you call it, combinatorics, but yeah, it, it seems like you're right that there's some chance that he's taking a hand like ten nine and check raising with it, and we are you know pretty big favorite against a hand like that. But I don't think there's too many hands that fall into that category. Um, I think like ten nine suited is maybe the the only one, or I guess like ten eight suited. Um, there's still just like there's not that many combinations of those compared to the number of ways he can have you know ten nine or a turn straight or uh, nine eight or uh, nine seven or a turn straight. Yeah. Also. Uh, I think a lot of what is like what would inform this combinatorics, and you know, by the time you're listening to this, uh, you know, Jack will have done the in-depth analysis, so we'll see what he comes up with in terms of the exact combinatorics. But um, a lot of this for me is is clouded by the fact that um, this guy has three thousand in front of him, and the villain is rich, and he is playing very loose and aggressive. That's the only thing we know about this player from the description, and. I feel like there's a lot of ways to read that description. You know, there are some players that are a little more loose and a little more aggressive than average, and I'm guessing this player is probably closer to that and is probably just on a heater. But when I, you know, hear that the villain is rich and that they have three thousand um, dollars, in my mind, I think that they have a lot, probably a higher bluff frequency and a wider range than I otherwise would. And I'm still just trying to decide exactly. You know, w- w- what's the range of hands they can have in the spot given the description? Yeah, that's fair. To be honest, I, I had sort of forgotten who the villain was uh, in in talking through this. I think in general, when you see like one two players raising here, they're pretty nutted. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I I could see this guy being something of an exception to that, and um, that does make raising somewhat more appealing. Well, and then but then there's also the fact like. If someone's playing really aggressive and they were the pre-flop raiser and they had like a drawing hand, I, I think it's a lot more likely that they bet bet it as opposed to check call check raise. Like I think that is more indicative. Yeah, of but some... I think there's a better chance that they're just check call check raising with some you know ace jack or just something like where they didn't oh. have anything flop and then on the turn they still don't have anything but they don't like folding because you know they're uh, as as Nate would say fragile masculinity needs to be protected so. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, I I think you make a good point, Zach, that this line doesn't make that much sense, especially from someone we think is going to be you know, taking aggressive lines with a lot of their value range. So I think we are actually up against a lot of bluffs here, which makes me like calling as well. So we have to kind of decide, like, if we call and we think he's bluffing a lot, we're probably going to end up stacking off on blank river cards but I think the other thing about calling in this spot is that our hand is... We have a nice hand to get bluffed into because I think a lot of the cards that improve our hand, like a jack, uh, a six, or a club, our hands this villain is going to almost certainly continue their bluff on. So when we hit our hand, I think we're very likely to get paid off without really doing anything. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it looks like we're holding a queen when we call. I mean, which we are, but we're holding a little bit more than a queen. Yeah, this is... Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, this is a... This is an interesting spot. I it's It might not be as clear as a, you know, call versus all-in as we might have thought. Again, I think the, the, the thing that is clear is that we should have checked. 
But after we bet 40 and they raised 100, it could really go either way. And like you said, Andrew, yeah, I think, you know, the villain having ace-jack or some type of random ace-high that they check-called the flop with and just decided to bluff because our sizing was below half-pot on the turn, I think that's a lot more likely than them choosing to check-call with 9-10 being a loose and aggressive player and then check-raising on the turn. So I, I, I don't know. I'm curious to see what Jack comes up with this week for the combinatorics um, and if maybe kind of a thin value all-in is, is the best play. But my, my instinct is that uh, calling after we bet 40 and it goes to 100 is the best. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's shipped though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in-game in he shipped. So he tank- the, the results are the, the villain tanks for 20 to 30 seconds. And Hero writes, I do not care if he calls, because even if I have the best hand, he has been running hot and sucking out all night, hence the 3,000. And he calls and turns over the 5-6 of clubs for the low end of the straight and flush blockers, king of hearts on the turn, and I go home a zero. Yeah. That's that's shitty, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, basically, it's like, this is why we don't want to bet the turn. There's just there's too many. I mean, we didn't even mention 5-6 as a possibility, although in retrospect, we should have. Um, but yeah, it's just like that, that turn card puts so many better hands out there that we really don't want to be uh, inducing check raises, and there's not many great hands to, to call against. And yeah, it, it's certainly pretty unlucky, and uh, both unlucky to run into that hand, and also unlucky that we didn't draw out on it because we did have a fair number of outs. But uh, it's you know it's a good example of why you don't want to bet the turn. Yeah. Uh, so Andrew, so until like ten episodes or something ago, we we stuck to kind of our name and just did hands. And then we kind of realized that we really like talking to a lot of our guests as well. Um, so started doing something where for each time we have a guest on, we try to have like, you know, want like podcast, whatever, this would be 44 or 45A, and then have like a 40, 45B where we, you know, ask some questions so the listeners that just want the hands can get the hands and then the people that want the interviews can get the interviews. And I was wondering if you still a little more time if you wanted to kind of just talk some more general poker poker things yeah, podcast I, stuff yeah i got another 15 minutes or so cool um uh jack did you have any questions for for andrew yeah i've got an important question <laughs> so andrew uh now that you've been doing the podcast for a few years uh people sort of know who you are in fact Last time I was, or last time Zach and I were in Maryland, we talked to one of our friends who played with you. And he, he basically gave away your strategy. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just wondering how that, you know, how, how has the podcast changed your presence at the table? Do you feel like people are playing differently against you? Uh, have you done anything to adjust to that? Um, I don't know. I still never really expect to be recognized. Um it's always kind of a surprise to me if somebody is like, oh, hey, you're Andrew, right? Like, I don't, um, yeah, that just, uh, it continues to be a surprise. I mean, it's a surprise to me that people listen to the show, not because I think it's a bad show, but just like, I don't know, there's a lot of things that I like that I don't listen to just because who has the time? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I I never like expect that people are going to recognize me or know who I am. Um, A lot of the people who I'm playing against know who I am, not because of a podcast, but just because, uh, because I've played with them a lot. Like you know, when you're playing in, in higher stakes games, especially in a smaller community, like uh, I used to live in Pittsburgh and, and that was certainly a very small community of higher stakes players. And uh, even now, uh, lucky chances 
until recently was the place where I played uh, most regularly and the pretty small community of the higher stakes players there. And when I'm playing at Maryland Live, even where I just play a couple times a year, but it's still mostly the same people I see. So, I mean, they, they know who I am, not necessarily because of the podcast, but just that we've, we've played together before. Uh, the, the thing that sort of surprises me the most, and I do try to keep a somewhat lower profile at least on Twitter in terms of like talking about strategy and stuff or posting strategy is during the world series of poker. Um, because there are a lot more just people from my perspective, random people who know who I am. Sometimes they introduce themselves. Sometimes they don't. I always appreciate it when they do, but they're definitely giving up something by letting me know who they are, especially if you're like, uh, you know, 40-something, 50-something businessman-looking kind of guy. Like, the assumptions I'm going to make about you before I've played with you, based, just based on sort of your appearance and demeanor and whatnot, are going to be very different if you tell me that you're a Thinking Poker podcast listener, um, in addition to how I expect you to play against me, just sort of what I'm going to expect you to know about poker in general. So basically, you're not giving anything up. We're actually the ones, you know giving stuff up by letting you know that we listen to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like, uh, I don't know, smirked a little bit or something when you said, you know, he, he gave away your strategy. Like, I, I would like to think that it's not, um, I don't have a strategy in that sense of like, oh, Andrew always like raises turns when flush cards come in. Or like, that it's not it's not something that straightforward that you can... Uh, <laughs> so like oh that's how he plays like i think it is a little bit more a matter of just sort of like knowing that people are capable of certain things and so you know there are assumptions that i'm going to make about someone who's who looks a lot like a recreational player maybe even a specific sort of recreational player and i'm going to assume that there's things they're thinking about and things they're not thinking about and plays they're capable of and plays they're they're pretty unlikely to make you know as we were just doing talking through that that one two hand um, and then when they tell me, oh, I listened to the Thinking Poker podcast, okay, now I'm going to think that they're at least, you know, have been exposed to uh, some some other concepts, whether they've mastered them or not. And, you know, likewise, I think people may not, who, who don't know a lot about me, um, even if they have the idea that I'm a professional, like some professionals are better than others, some professionals play deep stacked cash games, some play mostly tournaments, and um, you know, if you don't know which one of those categories I fall into, then you're not necessarily going to know that I'm capable of some of the things that you know I am in fact capable of. And so if there are spots where people just assume, oh, you know, only really elite players bluff here, and I don't know who this asshole is, but uh, he's not elite, so I'll fold. And then, like, it turns out I was bluffing there, you know, that's that's pretty valuable for me. Um, but I don't know that the people who are doing that are necessarily the people who are finding out who I am because of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, kind of shifting gears, Andrew, uh, just based off the little that I know you, it feels like I know you kind of well, just because I heard every episode of the podcast. So, you know, the beginning always starts with a little bit of kind of what's going on in your life. And I was just wondering if you had any kind of thoughts or wisdom for the listeners in terms of kind of lifestyle design, because it, it sounds like, you know, while you are a professional poker player uh, and consistently do play, uh, it sounds like you don't, you know, grind it out, so to speak, and whether cash or tournaments and, find a nice balance of travel playing cash playing tournaments and i was just wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that and kind of like what you've come to through you know your experience as a professional poker player well this this may be finally coming around to to bite me in the ass a little bit as uh <laughs> you know, just more and more like you kind of see this in the w coop um especially some of the higher buying events in the w coop like there are so many people who 
Uh, I've never seen their screen names before. You know, I don't play online that much. I have no idea who these people are. Even if I found their real names, I would have no idea who they are. And they're really good. Like, and they're probably 23. You know, (laughs) they've sort of gotten really good um, just over the course of a couple of years. And that's been through a probably really single-minded devotion to playing poker, studying poker, just like pouring all of their time and and energy into it. Uh, And I'm certainly envious that, you know, they've gotten that good at, at, that young of an age and you know how good they're going to be in a couple of years at the same time what i've always said is um if i wanted a job i would get one you know like it's not a, i've always kind of looked at poker as more um a way to make money without having to have a job so i've kind of i try to work smart like in terms of my studying i try to do high value stuff and um not necessarily like i'm sure i would be a slightly better player if i you know reviewed every hand that i played during the w coup but i'm not going to do that i'm going to look at like a couple of specific spots that i really didn't know what to do um or i feel like i i need to have a better idea of like how to approach a spot like that i'm not going to you know review every single tournament with uh and i have access to people like especially because of the podcast like there's a few people i've met who are you know really really good players who i could probably you know, I wouldn't be able to do it every week, but like I could say, Hey, well, why don't we go over a hand history sometime? And, and we could probably do that. Um, and, and I, I probably ought to be taking advantage of a few of those opportunities, but, um, I, I try to just focus on, on the really high value stuff and same with playing. Um, I try not to feel compelled to play, you know, it, it's a little harder now than when I had access to online poker all the time, because it's sort of like, well, you know, live poker, there's only going to be a, a 10, 25 game going, at certain times and so you know you can't just play whatever hours you would like to play but i i try to build i I feel like the poker schedule is flexible enough that i can sort of build my life build poker around my life rather than the other way around and say like well you know there's a how could i possibly skip the sunday warm-up like i have to be playing poker every single sunday um and to sort of look at it as like you know everyone no, nobody works all the time or most people don't work all the time and the people who do don't seem very happy so <laughs> yeah and i mean we were we were kind of talking about this a little bit with um maybe maybe this is before we started recording but we were talking about uh you know people who play live poker tournaments or play poker tournaments exclusively mm-hmm. and uh i think you really have to have a sense of what you're what you're signing up for in terms of variance and i think a lot of people don't have that sense and i I mean uh, another good lesson for this is uh carlos welsh who we've had on our podcast a number of times who i mean he talks about happiness ev first and foremost and so he's kind of like i and and he's really has designed his life to be very very low cost so that he can say i really don't need to make very much money from poker i enjoy poker and i play poker because i enjoy it and i do need to make some money and poker is a good way to do that but uh, i never play poker when i don't feel like it and i don't feel compelled to play stuff that i don't feel like playing And, and that's been an inspiration to me where I used to feel like when I traveled to play online poker that I needed to be playing a lot of tables at once just because I was like, well, I can play online. I really have to make the most of this opportunity and put in long hours and play like 12, 14 tables at once. And I mean, even when I was playing online regularly, I was never that great at multi-tabling. Like 12 is really getting up there in terms of how many tables I can play well on at once. And that was when games were softer and I was more in the habit of, of doing it. And I don't think I was even playing that well. And I just felt this pressure to like play all these tables and I didn't enjoy it that much. And um, 
and really it, it was Carlos who sort of inspired me to say, you know what, I don't want to play 12 tables at once. It's not that fun. I don't know that it's even working out that well for me. So I don't know that I ever had more than seven games going during the W Coop, and that was only on like a Sunday. I was just kind of picking the highest value tournaments and saying, just because there's a big one or nine starting doesn't mean I have to fire it. And I think a lot of MTT players really have difficulty passing up any good value tournament. They're just sort of like, oh, I have to play this. I have to play that one. And I'll never late register anything. And uh, I mean, you can, you have the flexibility to design a schedule you want. And I think you should just pick some hours that you're going to play and find tournaments that are going during those hours rather than saying, you know, I, I just, I have to play every good value tournament there is on the schedule. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of pointing out how that flexibility can be a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that, you know, that flexibility is is great, but there's, it's also this, it's like the constant pressure of uh, you could be making money right now. Right, you, you can and, always monetize any time that you have, and if you start thinking of it in those terms, then like, you know, going to a movie is quite expensive because you're not right. paying for the movie ticket, you're paying for like your lost wages while you're there. And I can relate to that in another way. Zach and I are both also musicians. Uh, And and it's a similar thing with practice, practicing uh, music, because you're never done. Um, You can set goals, and I think goal setting is probably uh, a really important part of success, both in music and in poker, Uh, although you have to be careful with, especially in poker, I think, what what your goals are. Uh, And you know, understanding the role of variance. But, oh shit, I lost my train of thought. Hold on. This is like that you're never done practicing? Oh, right, right. Yeah, the fact that uh, you could always be using your time towards this sort of uh, ultimate goal, you know, you, you'll never make as much money as you can. You'll never be as good of a musician as you can. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to come to terms with, but something I'm working on. You guys know I'm a big, uh, or if you listen to the podcast, a big David Foster Wallace fan. Have, have either of you read Infinite Jest? No, I've. You're hearing you guys talk about it has inspired me too. But of all, <laughs> I, speaking of the sort of endless practice and poker stuff, uh, I have I have a hard time picking up long books these days. Yeah, it, it's a big undertaking. I, I usually recommend that people start with, with shorter and then and, and with nonfiction stuff that he's written. But um, the, the reason I bring it up is that a, a big part of the book takes place at a, a tennis academy. So it's a place for like really elite uh, you know, teenage tennis players mm-hmm. or, or kids who are tennis players. And so you know, there are some parts of the book that are kind of like meditations on um, – the, the just sort of like what it means to commit yourself so single-mindedly to something because i mean these are like you know there are people who are potentially going to be uh going to the olympics or playing on the professional tour or that sort of thing and so they're you know they really are like their entire lives are, are dedicated to tennis and then it's kind of like what sort of life does that produce is that ultimately making you happy is it something that they even chose or you know are you capable of making a choice like that when you're five years old or whenever they started uh in on it so i mean i I think there's he has some interesting stuff to say about that and and people who know me know that i'm a a big fan of him and that's that's one theme that comes up in that book Hmm. well i'm even more compelled to read it (laughs) yeah i I read about the first with something easier really uh, probably, I don't remember exactly what prompted me. I'm guessing it was one of the many mentions 
on your podcast, but I, I read the cruise ship article, uh, yeah, which I thing I'll never do again. Yeah, I really enjoyed that because, as Jack knows, I was highly considering looking to work on a cruise as a musician, bringing a band on for a while, and then kind of talk with some musicians who did it, did some more research, and the nail in the coffin was definitely that article. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. So that and that was good, and then yeah, Infinite Just was great, but then you know. Life got in the way, and it's there's something overwhelming about such just like a thick book that I know you know it's it's not you know one or two minutes per page. Right. <laughs> uh, Skip I, the audio book. I mean, it's thick it's in the, the sense that it, it's long, but it's also uh, really dense. I mean, it's not it's not an easy read. And um, the audio book, I think, would be a disaster. I know it exists, <laughs> but um, I, I can't. That'd be, that'd be that'd be so many hours. Yeah. Well, and it's just, I mean, because the, the footnotes are such an important part of the book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they handle, like, going back and forth between those. And, like, you really need to be able to reread passages. And you can't just, like, do it while you're driving the car. I mean, that's, I don't know. It, I can't imagine anyone has ever listened to the audiobook as their only read through. I mean, maybe if you've already read the book and you're just sort of listening again. But, like, for your for a first time going through it, doing an audiobook, I, I can't imagine that's ever worked for anyone. Yeah, no, I, right now, the last few books I've read have been some of the densest books I've read in a while. Oh, we should have talked about this. Uh, Foucault and Latour. So, to people I'm sure you're what quite familiar with. Uh, Discipline and Punish, and I'm finishing We Have Never Been Modern right now. Uh, I've never read that, actually. But, yeah, Discipline and Punish is a good one. Yeah, and I'm just, you know, finding because I, I primarily read a lot of, like, I don't know, like how-to nonfiction, whether it's like articles or books, like basically things that I can read at a fairly quick pace. So then when you read something like Foucault or Infinite Jest or Bruno Latour, just something more heavy, it, there's almost, there's like a, a lot of ego at play, at least I find personally, where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm a fast reader. I'm a smart guy. I should, <laughs> should be reading and I'm digesting this more. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, the whole point of me reading this is so I think and not just like, you know, read each sentence and itemize each thing, you know? <laughs> but what what prompted you to read Discipline and Punish? Uh, so I'm actually in my my last last semester of uh, college and conservatory, so I'm doing. No, a, I, doing I, a, I figured it had to be school. No no one reads that book. <laughs> Just well, to take for, for what it's for what it's worth, it's a private reading, so I got to, I got to pick the books. Um, yeah, I, I had to take two more politics classes this semester, so. Uh, I was able to make one of them. Just I meet with a professor once a week, and we talk about books that I wanted to read, and then I write a paper at the end. So it's it's been a good, pretty fun so far. Did you like it? This fun and punish. I really I really liked it. I still feel like I don't fully understand it, um, but it definitely made me think and made my brain hurt more than almost any other book has in a while. It kind of you didn't like fully it. understand it. Yeah. <laughs> What were you going to say? No, I, I was saying it, it sounds like someone's at the dentist's office right now. I feel like I'm hearing like the, the suction thing. Yeah, that that's, yeah. Come to that, the that, that, that would be the beautiful uh, background music of the Cleveland airport. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Muting. Uh, well, I know, Andrew, you said about... 18 minutes ago that you had to go in 15 minutes so we don't want to take any more of your valuable time that you're going to monetize I'm sure into one of your many <laughs> many avenues so 
uh yeah we we seriously really appreciate you coming on the podcast i know for me and i'm sure for jack too this is just like a big big moment for us we've had our podcast for less than a year we both religiously listen to yours so to have uh nate and then you on the podcast it's just you know it's a so it's a really big deal for us and we really appreciate it awesome well i'm I'm, uh I'm, i'm proud of you for sticking with it i know it's not the easiest thing but i know you guys have been doing it for a little while now and um have you had carlos on the show yet yeah he's our second repeat guest uh, okay, great. I, love, I, had, I had a feeling you had. We love we love having Carlos. I think he was our yeah, episode. He's the best podcast guest there is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a because he's available, like he'll actually do it, and B he's so entertaining. I mean, maybe there are some better guests out there, but uh, you know, you can have our time getting like Ricky Gervais to come on your show. But uh, yeah, I mean, Carlos well, will do it, and he's great. He just he makes us feel funny. He because he, he laughs at everything you say, uh, and uh, I know I know I don't deserve it, but. I'll take it. Uh, how how close are you to a year? Oh, uh, this is episode forty-four, and we haven't missed a week. So, that's it too. Eight eight weeks. Yeah. Wow, it's wow. only eight more. Yeah, I guess we started like the end of November, or early December. Wow, time flies. Yeah, that's a big deal. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll keep up the good work, guys. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Night. Hot damn.